We moved to King Lake after I retired from, both of us retired from paid work from RMIT, TAFE, libraries. George, my partner, is a librarian and, and a writer. We got involved with everything up there. When we lost the house, we moved back to my house in Preston. I had no people, had no networks because I'd been gone for four years. And then I saw, I was thinking, oh, I'm a bit lonely and I feel a bit disconnected. This is Vivian. She joined the Archipelago Community Choir in 2009 and it's changed her life. I had sung in choirs before we went to King Lake. I sang with the Ashton Smith Singers, but I needed people and I, I love to sing. So I saw the uh, ad in the local paper, the Preston Leader, and came in for Christmas carols, which I've always loved. And I've been here since November 2009. Well, it's the people and the music, and it also gives you such a, a feel good, like an endorphin rush. The people in the choir are marvellous, all ages and from all kinds of backgrounds. If you wanted to populate another planet, you could send this choir and a bunch of tradies to build stuff. You've got everything you need. We've got teachers, nurses, biologists, researchers, writers, we've got everybody. Hi, I'm Meg and I joined the choir back in 2009. I actually found a postcard at a cafe which was advertising the choir. When I told my friends I joined a choir, their reaction uh, from my friends and family was, what? You don't know how to sing? <laughs> Thanks, guys. <laughs> There's been a flow of younger people over the years. And in fact, just today I drove past the street where a, a very young woman, she would have only been 17, uh, uh, came to our choir for about a year and I used to pick her up, she didn't drive. With the young people, um, mostly over that time, they've come, you know, for a year, maybe, maybe two, and, you know, they've got a lot of stuff going on in their life and they're trying new things. Um, and it, it really, um, it gives a bit of spark to the feeling in the, in, in the choir, especially, when the young ones come and stay and put in and perform with us and um, and really enjoy it. Hi, my name's Zach. I joined the choir group around three weeks ago. Zach is the youngest choir member. He's 19. There's a couple of things I get out of the choir group. I get social interaction every week on a weekly basis over here at Sacred Heart. And I also get to learn a new skill. It's great. Zach, Meg and Vivian all came to Archipelago Community Choir at very different points in their lives. And this shared activity is more than just a nice way to spend a Wednesday evening. It's actually really good for their health. That's because activities like this are the antidote to a somewhat hidden issue, and that's loneliness. It's tangled up in so many mental and physical health concerns, but it doesn't have to be. I'm Dr Sandro DeMeo, and this is In Good Health. Archipella connects people from multiple generations every week, but one generation is feeling the sting of loneliness more than others. And that's Zach's generation, young people. 
Professor Catherine Haslam is a clinical psychologist, a lecturer, and the director of the Social Identity and Groups Network at the University of Queensland. Kath, I've heard that young people today are the loneliest generation. Is this true? The evidence is certainly pointing to the fact that young people are experiencing the greatest levels of loneliness across age groups. So what we know is that um, it isn't just that young people are lonely. We know that one in four Australians um, are lonely, but it's higher in young people of, you know, like the 18 to 25-year-old group. So here we're seeing one in three um, young people being lonely. By and large, young people are certainly experiencing the greatest levels of loneliness. You know, Australia is no different to other countries. You see the same levels um, in the UK, in the US, uh, of loneliness uh, being reported and greater levels of loneliness being reported in young people. That's just heartbreaking. It is heartbreaking. Is that different from pre- like has it increased over time or have the youngest in society always been the loneliest? Look, I think that we don't have enough data that speaks across generations because we've only been sort of monitoring across age groups and getting sufficient data across those age groups more recently. I think that loneliness has always been there. Um, I think that societal changes are probably making things harder, reducing, changing um, opportunities uh, that young people have in ways that didn't exist previously. So you know, trying to get into the housing market, to move out of home, um, to all of those other changes that people are actually experiencing. Yeah, finding a job, navigating all of the economic and social challenges, yeah. I think they're a bit harder. I think that, and so I suspect that there've been increases with societal changes um, and those changing opportunities that that young people are actually experiencing. So young people experience loneliness in such significant numbers. Why is this? One of the things that we do know about loneliness is that a trigger for it is life changes and whether those life changes are positive or negative. And young people are actually going through that transition into adulthood. So the sorts of things that they experience are things like leaving school, starting a range of new jobs to develop that career, intimate relationships are kind of sort of developing, some leave home, some start uni all of these life changes are actually a part of our identity development. And these life changes have two consequences. First, it creates some uncertainty in our lives. And uncertainty, that not knowing, that can throw us. And the second thing is that when we experience these life changes, we experience relationship changes. So we have a little bit of a social upheaval during that period of time. So life changes, alter who we relate to, who we see, how we engage with people. And it's those sorts of upheavals that also make for uh, quite a difficult time as well. So these sorts of triggers, whether they're good or bad, can create uncertainty and it's the uncertainty and the social upheaval that actually gets in the way. That's interesting. So, so it's the combination of the change in our lives but also the change in our social circles and the connections in our lives that, that are impacting? I mean, do we un- have an understanding of whether one has more of an impact than the other? Look, I think that both of these um, are associated and it's hard to kind of tease them apart because life changes 
are going to bring about all of those sorts of social changes. So I do think that they're related and hard and hard to tease apart. So I wouldn't turn around and say one is more important than the other. I would say that both of them have an impact. Um, and I really, I mean, a lot of our work focuses very much on the idea that these are identity changing relationships. And it's, it's the identity changes that are really pretty central to um, the success of those transitions. So if we lose important relationships along the way, then what happens is that we lose a number of those supports, the people who are building us up, the people who are actually sort of trying to support us in periods of change. And sometimes those periods of change can be pretty challenging. So if we lose those connections, then we lose those supports and uh, resources that our relationships provide us. When you say identity changes, what, what, what does that mean? So when we think about identity, a lot of us actually think about identity as um, something that's unique about us as individuals. So we think of identity as being unique. Um, you, Sandro, I, Kath, these are sort of unique aspects, we're unique individuals. But a large part of our identity is also informed by the things that we share with other people. The groups that we belong to, whether they're our family and friendship groups, our work and professional groups, our community and interest groups and so on. And so these groups that are part of our lives actually get under our skin to become part of us. Um, and when they become part of us, they actually part of our social self, what we refer to as our social identity. They actually influence the way we think and feel, what we say and what we do in different situations. So there is that unique element of us as part of our identity, what makes you and I unique as individuals, but there's also that part of our identity that we share with other people. So that social self is just as important. And if we track back to what we were talking about just a moment ago in terms of life changes and relationship upheavals during the transition to adulthood, think about those groups and relationships as forming and being pretty integral to our identity. So if we lose some of those, you can get a sense of how much that impacts on our lives going forward. I've made some friends I see outside the choir and uh, some that I'm just looking forward to seeing each week. And uh, it's just lovely, yeah. And then we do some things at the end of the year, social uh, occasions. We sing in the Ivanhoe Boulevard. We have a meal in a bar beforehand and stun them all by standing up and singing carols. It's just lovely. It's just a lovely feeling. And are some types of relationships more powerful or protective than others? I'm thinking sort of partner, family, friends, are some more predictive or protective in times of change than, than other forms of relationships? Look, I think all relationships matter. So um, our one-on-one -on -one ties, the, the intimate relationships we have, the relationships that we have with um, our best friends, a confidant, these are just as important as our group-based relationships. And I think that, I mean, a lot of the work that we do is focusing very much on those group-based relationships because, in a sense, those relationships were the one, uh, tend to be the ones that we, that we ignore, that we take for granted, in a sense. So it's not that one is more important than the other. It's that they give us different things and they build us up in slightly different ways. And those group-based relationships, as I was saying earlier on, are really important because they're building up our identity. They're building up our sense of who we are and where we fit into the world. So a way I like to think about it is thinking about, you know, how do we, you know, we live our, we live our lives out through, through the groups that we're part of. 
I learn about my morals, the things that matter to me, what I believe in, my values from the people that I relate to. I learned that from my family. I've learned about my professional values through the professional groups that I'm actually associated with. So we we get these different resources and different things from the from the different relationships that we have with people. So I wouldn't say one is more important than the other. I would say we need both and we need a good balance of both. You know, some of our research has actually really highlighted that the people who have the greatest resilience, the people who um, develop uh, more strongly in terms of their identity, in terms of their comfort, in terms of managing and navigating transitions, are people who are well connected. So it isn't just about one particular relationship, it's about multiple relationships. When we think about connections these days, you can't help but think about social media and digital. Yeah. So what role does social media play in all of this, good and or bad? I think the evidence here is pretty mixed. So I do think that social media, when it's a positive source of influence, when it boosts you, that certainly can be helpful. And particularly in in situations where, you know, you've moved cities and so you can't necessarily um, touch base face to face in the same way that you might have when you were living in the same town. Um, and the same goes for when you sort of move overseas. Um, we also know that in the you know, clinical health space, people who experience significant social anxiety often find it really a hard step to take to just go out there and join in-person groups. They like a, a little bit of, you know, the, trying to engage virtually in some way, whether it's through different forms of social media or whether it's through online chats and Zooms, that can feel like a stepping stone towards in-person which can be a little bit challenging for people who've felt a bit isolated and disconnected for some time. But you're definitely right. I mean, social media isn't always positive. We, all of us, I think, have uh, seen situations and have heard situations where people have been bullied, where they've been put down. And this has been something that's, you know, been an ongoing issue. Now, we can see that in in-person relationships too, but you tend to see that a little bit more in online and social media interactions because they're just that little bit more distant. They're, you know, there's a little bit more anonymity associated with it. So is there an evolutionary benefit to loneliness? Like why are we wired to feel lonely? I see loneliness as a signal that our relationships aren't cutting it, that they're not meeting our needs, that um, can be useful to us because if, if, if it's highlighting something that's not working, then it's giving us a signal that there's something that we need to do about it and something that we should be able to do about it to change. And that's the thing that I think is really sad, I suppose, in, in the context of loneliness is that this is something that can be changed if we target it and um, target it in the right way, if we talk to people in the right way, if we help people to recognise it. And what about the opposite? What are the long-term effects of, of loneliness, of not having those connections? What, what does it do to our health? Um, well, it actually undermines our health quite dramatically. So there's now a number of significant meta-analyses that are out there. What the research is actually showing us is that people who are chronically lonely, the effects of that on health are about the same as smoking and social disconnection and loneliness is worse for your life expectancy than physical inactivity, than poor diet, than alcohol misuse, 
So there's researchers who've actually tried to have a look at the impact of all of these different factors, standard health behaviours that we know impact on health. And don't get me wrong, all of those factors impact on health. So it's not that you should go out there and be socially connected and forget about managing your health. All of these factors matter. But these meta-analyses or research studies are really just highlighting just how vital our connections are. And we ignore them at our peril. Can our social identity or our connections, can they be a force for good? Can we use them in treating those same chronic conditions or or reducing our risk? Look, I think that uh, when our social self, the groups that form our social self are a positive source of influence, absolutely. We've seen evidence that supports, uh, reduces uh, mental ill health. In older adults, we've actually seen effects on... um, reducing cognitive decline, increasing performance, concentration, attention. We've also seen some effects on memory. Um, So yes, they can actually be a source for good, but groups can also bring us down. So where there are groups that are a negative influence on our lives, they might cause us to not engage in uh, exercise, eat unhealthily um, when we're around them. Uh, They might also put us down you know, where there are some of these challenging relationships, that can actually undermine health. And we certainly have seen evidence associated with that too. It's about knowing, so the reason why you want to really understand these social networks and the dynamics around those networks in a health context is that you're only getting part of the picture if you're just targeting the particular health problem and the symptoms. Because a lot of those symptoms and those health problems aren't lived in a social vacuum. They're lived out there with other people. And those understanding those influences that those other groups in a person's life, those other people in a person's life have, provides a bit more of a holistic, I think, understanding of, of health. It's incredible to think about the power of connection, not just in preventing disease, but also potentially treating it. Mm-hmm. But how do you make those connections? So so what if you're you're out there, you're trying to meet people, you're trying new things, you're engaging with new people and strangers, but the relationships are just not sticking. They're not becoming meaningful. What what then? So one of the things I think that's really been uh, built up internationally is this whole idea of social prescribing, making sure that there are activities and supports out there in people's, people's communities and group-based activities largely um, that people have access to. And part of social prescribing involves um, working with a caseworker, there's different names, community navigators, um, who actually know what's available out there in people's communities and can link people up with activities that once sort of talking to people who experience loneliness, um, trying to connect them with groups that would matter to them based on what their interests actually are. Now, social prescribing is something that we're trying to build. So we've got groups like um, the Consumer Health Forum. We also have groups like the um, GPs who are really trying to promote something like this and increase the availability of those sorts of hands-on support to link people up. But one of the things I think that we also know is that we're never going to have enough money um, in the health service and the system, I think, to um, have enough navigators to support everybody. And so what we need to do is alongside that is we need to build people's self-efficacy, their social connection efficacy, trying to give them the knowledge and the skills to help them understand why social relationships matter for health. And how does social prescribing actually work to connect people? Are they like going to their GP? Because it feels a little strange to turn up to your GP and say, hi, 
I'm here looking for some friends. And they say, okay, let me help you find some. Yeah, no, it's true. Um, and look, I think that certainly turning up to community services um, and local community networks, because that's where people are going to be connecting. If you want to connect, it's got to be in people's local areas. And so there's a lot of um, lot of organisations and charities out there that are already providing some of these um, activities. Some of them are structured, so they're provided through uh, groups like the Salvation Army, Relationships Australia are also sort of providing some of these opportunities. But there are groups out there that are in the community that could be walking groups, volunteering groups. A lot of them exist. So it's about trying to find out, going to some of those local community um, networks and councils to see what actually exists out there. What about kids? So if we want to have these conversations with our kids, particularly, you know, teenagers, I've got a niece who's amazing, but, you know, I can already start to see her sense of self and identity is shifting. Um, How do we have these conversations with our kids, particularly the importance of connection? Look, I think we should be having some of these conversations in schools. I mean, I think that we already are doing that um, in schools as well as I think that um, we're having some of those conversations with with families. Um, So parents are starting to have some of those conversations with their own children. So I do think it's about normalising those conversations, that we shouldn't feel shame about not having enough connections or feeling lonely, um, despite the fact that that's how, how people describe it. We should be open about these discussions because there are things that we can do about them. So starting young, starting to think about prevention at a young age, I think is really important to do. We should shift. We should shift that boundary. We shouldn't just wait until a crisis happens. We should be getting in there. We shouldn't be waiting until a problem actually arises. We should be teaching some of those skills. I think it's like any sort of activity that you like when you share it. You've got the connection and amongst a group of people, there are some people that you're drawn to more than others, but with everybody, it's that sharing and that fun and and you build a history of of things that you can laugh about and maybe complain about (laughs) occasionally. At the choir group, it's been quite welcoming these past few weeks and it's been much easier to make social interactions with people as everyone's welcoming, kind and often forgiving of amateurs like myself. Where do you get to spend beautiful quality time with a group of people of all those different ages and backgrounds doing something you love? You can't beat it, really. So that's why I'm still here. Thanks again to Professor Kath Haslam from the University of Queensland and to the members of the Acapella Community Choir in Melbourne for sharing their incredible stories. And thank you for listening to In Good Health. If you enjoyed this episode, scroll back in your podcast feed for more. We've already talked about burnout and the confusing world of food labelling earlier this season. Make sure you hit follow in your favourite podcast app because there's still more great episodes to come. We'll dive into why it's so hard to get a good night's sleep and the hidden factors stopping us from being more active. In Good Health is a Vic Health podcast produced by Deadset Studios and hosted by me, Dr. Sandro DeMeo.